This morning we're going into the 15th chapter of the book of Romans. I want you to open up the book of Romans, please, to chapter 15. We'll be looking at verses 1 to 13. And would you please stand with me as I read God's word. We then, who are strong, ought to bear with the scruples of the weak, not to please ourselves. Let each of us please his neighbor for his good, leading to edification. For even Messiah did not please himself, but as it is written, the reproaches of those who reproached you fell on me. For whatever things were written before were written for our learning, that we, through the patience and comfort of the scriptures, might have hope. Now may the God of patience and comfort grant you to be like-minded toward one another, according to Messiah Yeshua, that you may, with one mind and one mouth, glorify the God and Father of our Lord Yeshua HaMashiach. Therefore, therefore, receive one another, just as Messiah also received us to the glory of God. Now I say that Yeshua HaMashiach has become a servant to the circumcision for the truth of God, to confirm the promises made to the fathers, and that the Gentiles might glorify God for his mercy. As it is written, For this reason I will confess to you among the Gentiles and sing to your name. And again he says, Rejoice, O Gentiles, with his people. And again, praise the Lord, all you Gentiles, laud him, all you peoples. And again, Isaiah says, there shall be a root of Jesse, and he who shall rise to reign over the Gentiles, in him the Gentiles shall hope. Now may the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing, that you may abound in hope by the power of the Holy Spirit. Let us all say together, Amen. You may be seated. There was an anthropologist living with a tribe of people in Zimbabwe, South Africa. And he was watching the children playing, and he decided he was going to play a game with them. This is the game. He put a basket full of fruit near a tree, a little ways away from them. And he told the kids that whoever got there first, in other words, to that basket of fruit near the tree, whoever got there first won all the sweet fruits that were in the basket. But when he told them to run, to his surprise, they all took each other's hands and ran together. Then they sat together and all enjoyed the fruit. And when he asked them why they run together like that, one of them could have had all the fruits for themselves. They said in, I think it's Osa, Osa. They said Ubuntu. They said Ubuntu. In other words, how can one of us be happy if all the other ones are sad? And Ubuntu in Xhosa culture means I am because we are. These children realize the importance of togetherness and of fellowship. And that's the title of the message this morning. It's fellowship. 
They understood the importance of supporting one another and looking out for each other. No believer should ever have to stand alone. God has placed us together in community, in family, in faith, and I believe in Son of David congregation as well. We're together to encourage and to support and to look out for each other. You see, the great divider and destroyer, well, that's Satan. But the great uniter and builder, that's our Messiah. And this chapter, Romans 15, is a continuation of the theme that we found in the previous chapter, Romans 14. In the first four verses here, Paul continues the theme of the strong versus the weaker. And this section gives us a great summary of what we can call the signs that should characterize believing fellowship. And I want to um, examine five such signs this morning. Here's the first one. Fellowship should be marked by consideration. Fellowship should be marked by consideration. Verses 1 to 3. We who are strong ought to bear with the failings of the weak and not to please ourselves. Each of us should please our neighbors for their good, to build them up. For even Messiah did not please himself, but as it is written, the insults or reproaches of those who insult you or reproach you have fallen on me. In other words, you and I, as followers of Yeshua, are called to look out for one another. That should be a responsibility, not an option. The term bear with goes beyond just tolerance. It, it goes beyond just putting up with others. Dear ones, it requires us to care enough to personally shoulder the burdens of others as if they were our own burdens. So why should we do that? Well, here's the answer. Because they're family, and that's what family does. And so having made the guidelines clear, Paul gives us an example to follow. Verse 3, even Messiah did not please himself. And then Paul quotes from the Tanakh from Psalm 69, as it is written, the insults of those who insult you have fallen on me. I have a suggestion for you. Read Psalm 69 this afternoon. It's an amazing, great messianic psalm. Seven of its 36 verses are cited in the Brit Hadashah. You'll find them in John, in Mark, in Romans, in Matthew, in 1 Thessalonians. Look for them as you read them through the, the Messianic writings. But a key verse of the psalm is not so well known, and it's verse 4, quote, I am forced to restore what I did not steal. The New King James translates it this way, though I have stolen nothing, I still must restore it. Those words perfectly describe an unfair situation. And it was an unfair situation that David the psalmist was experiencing at the time of the writing of the psalm. But dear ones, I believe that these words also describe the unfair situation Yeshua experienced when he went to that execution stake, when he himself bore our sins in his body on that tree. 
How many of you remember a movie called Bridge Over the River Kwai? See, everybody over 40. <laughs> it was also a book. It was called The Miracle on the River Kwai. The author's name was Ernest Gordon, and he tells a true story of some Scottish soldiers. These soldiers were forced by the Japanese captors to work on a jungle railroad. And the strain of imprisonment that they had had degenerated, as you read the book, into cruel, very cruel behavior. But one afternoon, something happened. Apparently, a shovel was missing. And the officer in charge, the Japanese officer, became absolutely enraged. He demanded that the missing shovel be produced or else. And when nobody in the squadron budged, the officer got his gun and threatened to kill them all on the spot. It was obvious the officer meant what he said. Then finally, one man stepped forward. The officer put away his gun picked up a shovel, and beat the man to death. When it was over, the surviving prisoners picked up this bloody corpse and carried it with them to the second tool check. And this time, no shovel was even missing. What this meant was that there had been a miscount at the first shovel check. And the word spread like wildfire throughout the whole camp. An innocent man, an innocent man had been willing to die to save the lives of others. Sadly, in that case, if you read the book or watch the movie, it was all in vain. But the question I would ask is, doesn't that remind you of the example of Yeshua? Messiah did not please himself. He considered us in our needs, and so he became our sin bearer, our substitute. He considered our needs above his own needs. And in these three verses, the apostle says this, go and do likewise. Go and do likewise. Second point is this. Fellowship should be marked by the study of Scripture. Say the word study with me. Study. Who here knows the difference between studying and reading? You read the newspaper. You study the scriptures. Quote, For everything that was written in the past was written to teach us so that through the endurance taught in the scriptures and the encouragement they provide, we may have hope. There was a uh, clergyman, a lyricist, who wrote the Christmas carol, O Little Town of Bethlehem. And no, we're not going to play it this morning. His name was, on the page that I just turned over, his name was Philip Brooks. I want you to listen to what he once wrote. Quote, The Bible is like a telescope. If a man looks through his telescope, he sees worlds beyond. But if he looks at his telescope, he does not see anything but the telescope. The Bible is a thing to be looked through to see that which is beyond. But most people only look at it, and so they only see the dead letter. Dear ones, true fellowship 
needs to and should be marked by the study of Scripture. And in verse 4, we're told of three benefits for those who study the Bible. And by the way, in this context of Romans 15, he's talking about the Tanakh. He's talking about the Hebrew Scriptures because the New Covenant Scriptures hadn't been written or gathered together yet. First, studying the Bible teaches us, quote, for everything that was written in the past was written to teach us. In other words, just as Paul quoted from Psalm 69 to make his point, so we too can also learn from reading and from studying the Hebrew Scriptures. Second, also verse 4, the second part of verse 4, it doesn't just teach us, it encourages us, quote, so that through the endurance taught in the Scriptures and the encouragement they provide, we might have hope. In other words, we should be encouraged when we read about God's attributes. We should be encouraged when we read about God's character. It's a reminder in whom our hope is based. We should be encouraged when we read in the, in the Hebrew Scriptures story of saints like Abraham, David, Ruth, Job, Elijah, Deborah. They overcame great obstacles and showed us what can be done with God's help. And we should be encouraged, too, when we study the Hebrew Scriptures and discover that the words in the Scriptures are a lamp for our feet and a light for our path. That's from Psalm 119, verse 105. By the way, you probably know that Psalm 119 is the longest psalm in the entire Scripture, 176 verses. Not only that, it's the longest chapter in the Bible. And all but five verses mention the Word of God in one way or another. And so, when you read Psalm 19, 119, you'll discover 169 reasons why the Word of God is encouraging. Check it out. It's a pretty cool psalm. Third, studying the Hebrew Scriptures and the Scriptures in general give us hope. Quote, we might have hope. And I believe that the Hebrew Scriptures, especially the prophets, promise a wonderful future for the believer in God and his Son. Indeed, these Scriptures bring hope, bring confidence, and expectation for the believer. There was a uh, Scottish minister, a Bible commentator, an author. He um, ministered in the late 1800s, the early 1900s. His name was Alexander White. And it's written that during his pastoral visits to his parishioners, he would quote to them a verse of the Bible, and then he would say this, put that under your tongue and suck it like a sweetie. <laughs> put that under your tongue and suck it like a sweetie. In Israel today, when the ultra-Orthodox teach their children Torah, one of the first things they do is they write a copy of the Shema on a little blackboard, a little slate, and then they cover the slate with honey, and then they tell the child to lick it up because they need to know that God's word is as sweet as honey. You see, the promises are the promises of God who never breaks his word. And so Scripture gives to the person who studies them comfort in his sorrow and encouragement in his or her struggles. Third, fellowship should be marked by unity. Unity. Verses 5 and 6. 
May the God who gives endurance and encouragement give you the same attitude of mind toward each other that Messiah Yeshua had, so that with one mind and one voice you may glorify the God and Father of our Lord Yeshua HaMashiach. Right here, Paul seems to return back to his main point concerning the stronger to the weaker. He inserts a prayer also in this teaching. One mind and one voice. And I believe Paul makes a clear connection between unity and union in Messiah and the unity and union of believers. In other words, if we belong to Messiah, if we belong to him, we also belong to each other. Our friendship should show itself in unity and in harmony. And I don't think that this is an optional extra. I think it's an essential that we all need to strive for. There's a modern author named Juan Carlos Ortiz. I don't know if you've ever heard of him. I agree with some of what he says. I don't agree with some of what he says. He came up with an interesting illustration. I like it up to a point, and then I think it goes too far. You'll see what I mean in a minute. The illustration is this. You go out into the potato patch, and you dig up all the potatoes and put them in one big bag. Now, all the potatoes are in the same big bag, but they're still individual potatoes. Next, they go to the packing shed where they're cleaned and put into smaller bags and sent to grocery stores. But even though they're in smaller bags, they're still individual potatoes. Then a customer buys five pounds of potatoes, takes them home, peels them, puts them in the cooking pot. Now they're even closer together. Their skin no longer separates them, but they're still individual potatoes. Now, if it were me, the illustration would stop here. But Ortiz goes on. He says, it's not until they're boiled and mashed and mixed all together that they really become one, and that is what God wants for us. Now, as I said, I stop agreeing with Juan Carlos Ortiz about three-quarters of the way through his illustration, and here's why. Because when the potatoes are mashed, they lose their individuality. And God wants unity, not uniformity. Unity, not uniformity. You see, uniformity is what you find in cults, like the Mormons, the Jehovah Witnesses, etc. The Orthodox, the ultra-Orthodox in New York City and Jerusalem. They dress the same, they sound the same, and everything is prescribed for them. They're mashed potatoes with no room for individuality. Unity, however, is different. It means we can disagree, just not with me. (laughs) We can be different, yet still be one. And Paul's prayer and desire is that the Romans have the same attitude of mind toward each other. That does not mean that they should all come to the same conclusion. This is obvious from his discussion of the fact that there are the weak and the strong where he says the conscience of each is to guide the conduct of the person. It is unity of perspective that he's desiring. And the perspective is that of Messiah Yeshua. He's our perspective. He's our example. He's our model. So to put it simply, simply, we're supposed to act like he did. You see, in God's orchestra, every believer plays a different instrument. If we all played the violin... Wouldn't be much of an orchestra, would it? 
I love large orchestras. A good orchestra has four sections. We'll have a test here. David Wagner, you're not allowed to answer. How many, what are the four sections of an orchestra? Strings? Woodwinds? Brass? And? Where's Amy? Percussions. If they all do their own thing, what happens? Chaos. But if they follow the conductor and play in harmony with each other, then the end result can and should be a work of beauty. So look again at verse 6, because the body of Messiah is no different. So that with one mind and one voice, you may glorify the God and Father of our Lord Yeshua HaMashiach. One mind, one voice, big orchestra, but individuals. Amen? Amen. Fourth, fellowship takes its example and its inspiration and its dynamic from Messiah. Verses 7 through 9. Quote, accept one another then, just as Messiah accepted you, in order to bring praise to God. For I tell you that Messiah has become a servant of the Jews on behalf of God's truth, so that the promises made to the patriarchs might be conformed, and moreover, that the Gentiles might glorify God for his mercy. The story goes that Martin Luther was asked to give a eulogy at a funeral. Now, I know that we don't have very much love for Martin Luther, but I thought this story was very interesting. The funeral was for a guy named Nicholas Hausman. Hausman was a pastor of a church in Zwickau, which is a small a German city near Saxony. And Luther didn't waste any words in his eulogy. This is what he said. What we preach, he lived. That was it. What we preach, he lived. In other words, Hausman practiced what he preached. And Paul asks us to do the same with Messiah. Paul tells us how to copy Messiah. First, we're to accept people as they are. That's verse 7. Accept one another then just as Messiah accepted you. By the way, he didn't say put up with people. He said accept them. It's an act of the will. Don't reject people and discriminate against them just so you can stay in your comfort zone of favor friends. True faith consciously makes the effort to reach out. It's the will that makes the decision to act like our Messiah. And as we accept people for who they are, we will in time get to like them, maybe even love them. The example is given in the scripture here of Jew and Gentile. God has brought these two very different people groups together in one body. Oh, by the way, God's in the business of doing that. Have you noticed? We divide, God unites. The inclusion of Gentiles into God's plan of salvation would have upset, even offended the Jewish people of the time. The Jewish people who believed that the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob was their God, and the Gentiles could find their own deities to worship. And so Paul reminds any Jewish believer who still might hold to those types of prejudices that they're wrong. God's plan is, was, and always has been that both Jew and non-Jew would be part of his family. And note the end of verse 12. Paul quotes from the prophet Isaiah. He says, the Gentiles will hope in him. 
That's from Isaiah 11, verse 10. Now, the context of these verses is the Apostle Paul talking about God's plan of salvation, which is all centered in the Messiah. You see, God doesn't accept us because of our race, but because of our faith. Salvation came from the Jews, but it's not exclusive to the Jews. It came through the Jewish people. And God's plan has always been to bless all peoples. And to prove this, Paul quotes four verses from the Hebrew Scriptures. The first quote is verse 9, where Paul quotes from Psalm 18, verse 49, to show the Jews glorifying God among the Gentiles. The second quote is verse 10, where God quotes from Deuteronomy 32, 43, to show Gentiles rejoicing with Jews. The third quote is in verse 11, where Psalm, or Paul quotes from Psalm 117, verse 1, to show all Jews and Gentiles together praising God. And the fourth quote is from verse 12, where Paul quotes Isaiah chapter 11, verse 10, to show that Messiah shall reign over both Jews and Gentiles. And the key to knowing these truths is the end of verse 12. That quotes from the prophet Isaiah again. The Gentiles, the nations, will hope in him. Everything is centered in him. And fifth, our fellowship should be marked by praise. Marked by praise. Quote, May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace as you trust in him, so that you may overflow with hope by the power of the Ruach HaKodesh. True fellowship should be marked by praise. But too many congregations are marked by grumbling and discontentment. We should enjoy life. Why? Because we enjoy God. Those who don't know the Lord are the ones who should be the moaners and the grumblers. For this world is all they've got. But as believers who know the Lord, verse 13 says we have hope, we have joy, we have peace, we have power, and we have the Holy Spirit. We have hope, we have joy, we have peace, we have power, and we, hope we have the Holy Spirit. And remember, please remember, you didn't have to pay a single penny for any of those blessings. They were given to us by the God of grace and mercy. So the next time you're about to moan, stop. As the old hymn says, count your blessings and name them one by one. Everybody knows of Charles Spurgeon, the great Baptist preacher, the one who everybody reads his devotions, right? Some of us have his devotional books and the pages are so worn out that we should get new ones, but we just kind of like the way the old book feels. Well, you know what Spurgeon called Romans 15, verse 13? One of the richest verses in the entirety of the Word of God. One of the richest verses in the entirety of the Word of God. It is the sight of our hope. In him shall the Gentiles hope. Our hope looks to Yeshua as a constant focus. It is the source of this hope. He is the God of hope. God himself and none other is the source of our hope. It's the serenity of this hope. All joy and peace in believing. Joy. Happy are those whose sins are forgiven. And peace. We have peace with God through our Messiah, Yeshua. And it is the sufficiency of this hope. 
that you may abound, the Scripture says. Our hope is one of superabundance. He has saved us from the penalty of sin. He is continuing to save us from the power of sin. And one day he shall save us from the very presence of sin. And lastly, it is the supply of this hope by the power of the Holy Spirit. We receive this abundant hope by the Spirit's power at work in our lives. And so, as I close, I'm going to ask you to stand with me again. As I read Romans 15, verse 13, and I ask you to take it to heart. Now may the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing that you may abound in hope by the power of the Ruach HaKodesh. Let us all say together, Amen.